Ephesians chapter 4 again, verses 11 through 16. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, that is Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. I have, as I mentioned a moment ago, entitled this message, A Perfect Man. And it's after the words there in verse 13. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Some of the newer versions of, or translations of Scripture leave that to the perfect man out. But this is what the scriptures actually say, and it comes from the King James and now the New King James. And so I prefer this translation. But those words again, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Folks, those words, that intent is God's most earnest desire for you and me his beloved children, that you and I would be a perfect man, a perfect woman, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. But in truth, such a measure as that, as perfection, often seems so very far removed from who we really are and far beyond our reach even, especially as we struggle to navigate our way through all the many difficulties and trials that befall each one of us each day. Troubles and struggles come to us from every quarter, from the remnants, those remaining remnants of that old sin nature that hangs on and remains within our mortal flesh. And then on to all the many attacks that come from the outside of us, from the world and all of its ways and from our ever-present predator, the devil. The old prophet Job that we were talking about in Sunday school said it wisely. He said, life is but a few days and full of troubles. And it is. It is. But with that being said, though, we still do have these words that are set here before us today. What are we supposed to do with these words in amongst all of our troubles? Again, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Perfection. It's such a lofty word, one that has the highest of standards and, and principles. 
It's a measure of conduct and behavior that cannot simply be acted out on these stages of our daily life and circumstances. Perfection such as this that God is calling us to has to come from deeply ingrained within our character. A character that is not common to the souls of our ordinary human flesh. Now such perfection was once present in man. In those earliest days of Adam and Eve, I think about that, what a pleasant life they had before their fall from grace. But when sin then entered into their souls, perfection ceased for them. And struggles became that ordinary way of life for them. Eve suffering in her childbirth and Adam working the soil by the sweat of his brow, the scriptures tell us. Now to say that we have progressed since those days of Adam and Eve would give us a wrong understanding. Because yes, we have progressed in intellect and technology and other forms of progression. But not in this one matter that God is speaking to us about here in perfection. In perfection, we have actually sorely gone off course and in the wrong direction. But this is where he wants us to be, folks. This is where he wants us to be. And he is clearly saying that we really can go there till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, a perfect woman, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now may I repeat something I said a moment ago. This measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ is not is not a behavior that you and I can merely act out daily and hope that it will become then a natural and real manner of being for us. Such thoughts remind me of that question that we talked about on another Sunday here and it also came up in a Bible study I was in recently. And that is, can we do, as those people who teach in the behavior modification instructions and theories and methodologies, can we do as they suggest, that if we will simply fake it long enough, then we can make it? That saying, fake it till you make it. Is that possible? Can the mere practice of good behavior progress until we actually become the kind of person that we're trying to be? Let me say that again. Can the mere practice of good behavior progress until we actually become that good person? Just a short study of the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 will answer that question very clearly for us. Simply put, behavior flows out from the attitude of the heart. The heart must first be right before the behavior can ever hope to become right. Doing right comes from being right. But how can we do that? How can we do that? How can these words of our scripture text actually become real for us? as we go through all these difficult experiences every day. How can this become true for us? Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now here are these words 
you'll recall from our first reading that these words are set within the context of the working of the Holy Spirit that Christ has put within us in our salvation. And from that we know that the ultimate goal of this kind of perfection, this measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, it is part of, listen, it is part of and it is absolutely dependent upon the work of the Holy Spirit within our hearts. The infusion of His presence and of His spiritual gifts and of His fruits into our souls. And not only our souls individually, he's talking about here, that must also include all of the souls within the body of Christ. In other words, us as a group. Bringing us all to this perfect measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And let me say to you, this plan that God has for us is one that really will work. If we will simply join in with it, and allow it to have its way within us. Now, unfortunately, all you have to do is think for a moment, and you'll know that God's plan has not really worked out in the manner that He intended it to. Even from the first moments that the members of the body of Christ assembled themselves together to discuss this possibility of perfection, disagreements will immediately, inevitably, take place, and then roadblocks are erected. We immediately, and I'm picturing a group of devout Christians sitting down and discussing this matter of perfection. Can you not hear them? Immediately as you pose this question, is it possible for us to ever become this perfect man that God is speaking about here? There will be a chorus of voices crying out loudly saying, but no one is perfect. And neither can they ever be while they're in this life. Do you know why I know that would be said? Because I have said that. And most of you have said that. No one's perfect. And neither can you expect to be while you're in this life. Now those words are taught by the best and most devout of our Bible scholars that no one and no group of people can ever hope while they remain in this mortal flesh to actually attain to the condition of a perfect man, a perfect woman. We're told time and time again that no one is perfect except Jesus. He is perfect, but only He alone. And that we should never expect that it would be too much for you and I to really expect to ever become this one that God is calling us to. I thought about that, and the problem that takes place is we say it so often that it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy for us. I can't be perfect, therefore I will not be perfect. And so we're not. That's sad. That is so sad. Listen to these words. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, a perfect woman, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Listen, if we are the ones that God is calling out to as the body of Christ, if we are this body of Christ that he's calling out to here, if we insist that no one will be perfect except Christ, 
how then should we be dealing with this verse? Do we simply try to navigate ourselves around this verse and go on to something else? That's what we do, unfortunately. Now, for myself, I confess to you right at this moment, I am not wholly sure of the answer of how we can get from where we are to where we need to be. But I do hope that by the end of this message, through the pouring out of God's Spirit upon us, that God will give us enough light, at least for today, and then will instill a deep desire within us to know more, to want to pursue it further tomorrow. Because I am convinced, listen, I am convinced from these words that God truly does desire that we know and personally experience this godly perfection that he's speaking about here. So then, may we ask ourselves the question, is it possible for us to attain to this measure of godly perfection that's spoken about here? And I want to declare to you, based on these words, I believe that because they are here within these scriptures, that it is not only possible, but you and I are being commanded to do this. How are we to do this? And what about the one thing that stands in our way, that sets up these roadblocks, and that is sin? Because let me assure you, you'll recall from the example that I've given to you on other occasions here, from the book of Genesis, when God is looking into the face of Cain, just before Cain is getting ready to go out and kill his brother Abel. And God knows what Cain is going to do. And so he says to Cain, Cain, why is your face so downcast? Don't you know that if you will just simply do what is right, everything's going to turn out right for you. But, he says, you have to understand that sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you. Folks, listen, sin is not just something you trip over. Sin is a predator. It is ever crouching behind every door. And it desires to have you and it comes after you. You don't have to pursue after it. It comes after you. And that is what we're up against as we are looking at what God is calling us to. He's saying, I want you to climb up on that upward plane that we sang about in that first song. I want you to do that. But down here in amongst, in the valley, I'm tripping over sin that stuck its leg out in front of me. It wasn't just there. It reached for me. Sin invades our lives every day. And it is always an egregious violation of God's perfection. And so then, how are we supposed to get from where we are? in this sin-filled condition to where God wants us to be in these verses. What I'll say next is not casting of stones. It is simply the doctrine. The doctrine of the Methodists, in their struggle to attain to what John Wesley calls sinless perfection, did make that a little easier, simply because Wesley defined sin as being the willful violation of any known law of God. Now that's reduced simply, and and there's a lot more to it. 
but the willful violation of any known law of God. Now, if you narrow sin down to just that small definition, and that definition is not shared by even many of the Methodists, but if you try to narrow it down to simply that definition, then it is a little easier to reach for this sinless perfection. But then what about all those non-willful sins? Those ones that we unwillingly stumble into where you are caught up in a conversation and then suddenly something comes out of your mouth because it was more comfortable than the truth. And you didn't want to hurt that other person's feelings or all of those many other opportunities during the day. What about all of those thoughts that you have in your mind? The psychiatrists tell us that we have over 10,000 thoughts a day. I've shared with you, if you just do a little mathematics on that, if you only have 1% of those 10,000 thoughts that are sinful, that is where you despise your neighbor, that is where you lust after uh, a woman, where you do not forgive those that have wronged you, if you only take 1% of those, that's still 100, 100 a day, times 365, that's 36,500. And so over 30 years, you're going to have a million sins. You're going to have to stand there before the Lord. And he's going to say, let's talk about this. Lord, didn't I do enough good to offset those million sins? No. Unwillingly, we commit sins. There are those sins of omission. Those things that we should have done, but we didn't do. Many of those. So when you broaden out this definition of sin, sinless perfection, this thing that God is calling you and me to, becomes ever so difficult to do. But still, but still, we have to keep coming back to these words of verse 13. What can they mean to us? What can they mean if all of this is taking place? How can we really attain to these words till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to the perfect man, to the perfect woman, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ? I envision a pleasant condition. If I could walk in this condition every day, I would be the happiest guy you know. I would be the happiest guy. You would be the happiest person you know. Not caught up in this sin or that sin or this moment of despising this person or this moment of lust or this moment of greed or this moment of lying. Wouldn't that be pleasant? Now what we need to do, I believe, is to take these words within their context. And that is where Christ is giving special spiritual gifts to men and women. And then the members of the body of Christ then uniting themselves together and interworking as one body, exercising their particular gift that God has given to each of us. Now, he doesn't give us all these every gift. He gives us one or two or three. And so then as we then unite together, exercising our gifts with one another, denying our own self, and seeking to use our gifts for the benefit of all of our other fellow members of the body. I believe that is where we begin to get this glimpse of the perfection that he's talking about here. Because that's who Christ was. That's who Christ was. He was then and he is now perfect. He was sinless. 
both as a son of God and as a son of man. He gave up everything that he was that you and I might gain. He cared nothing for possessions. Do you care for possessions? He cared nothing for possessions. He cared nothing for that title. Those titles that we love so much. That worldly acclaim. He said to one on one occasion, he says, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. But then we respond back to that, but you don't understand. I have a family to feed. But he says back to us, Why do you worry? saying, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all, these things the Gentiles seek. But your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. That's what takes place in the body of Christ when it is working, and all of its members are working together towards this perfection that he's talking, this godly perfection he's talking about. Now, if you and I tried to envision this body of Christ, what would probably come to our minds is the thing that took place in the book of Acts where immediately everybody started selling everything and sharing everything in common. That really, really was a wonderful thought. And it worked well for a while, but even that, then started having difficulties. And that had to grieve the Lord so much. But listen, with all that being said, I have to ask us again and ask myself, what do we do with these words? What do we do with these words? God does not waste space in this Bible. He does not waste space in this Bible, and neither does He give foolish commands to us. And he doesn't instill vain hopes into us. This is real. And it's not just possible. God expects it of us. It's as simple as that. I'm going to read this whole passage again, just so we'll have it fresh before close. He himself gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors, others to be teachers. For the equipping of the saints, that is so that you can know what you're supposed to be doing for the work of the ministry, for the building up, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to this unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children, listen, tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love to one another, that we may grow up in all things into Him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body is joined together and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part, listen, every part does its share, causes growth for the body, for the edifying of itself in love. Jesus was giving gifts to men directly from His own hand. And let me say that that is the whole context. You and I, if we simply will stop and say, what came from His hands? What came from His hands that we know about? In John chapter 1, He said, everything that was created was created by His own hands. He says, everything that was created was created by Christ, and nothing that was created was created that was not created by His hands. 
everything. If God can do that, and if He sustains this air that we breathe every moment, and then He sustains your ability to breathe it, why can't we take these words then and also believe them? Why can't we trust the next thing that God is asking us to do till we come to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect person, a perfect man, a perfect woman, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ? He is, yes, on His throne in heaven, but He is giving you and me gifts as members of this body, and He is lifting us up and empowering us to actually do more than we could ever think or hope to do by ourselves. And He's going to do this for us. He's going to give us the power to take what He has given us in these gifts and to mesh them together as He talks about those joints fitting together to where we are then working through to this perfection. And then he also gives us a warning. Listen to this warning. It's right here in the middle of this promise. He gives us this warning that he, God the Father, and Christ our bridegroom, they are ever at the guard to protect us from the wiles of Satan. He says in verse 14 that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Now it's one thing for us to be scammed by some Nigerian scam artist. A lot of folks are falling victim to that these days. But here what he's talking about is right within our own church, there is going to be doctrines that raise up amongst us that's just plain wrong. And he's saying, I want to warn you that I'm going to help you with those. But it might be painful because what that's going to do is create problems among the believers within the church. But I don't want you to go astray in your thinking of how you're going to handle all of these doctrines. Because there's many a doctrine being preached every day about how to come to this perfection. And it is not real. And so he's saying to us, I don't want you to go astray in your thinking and in your beliefs. And so I'm going to guard you from all of that. But as we close, I want you and me to understand something. He's talking about you and me individually, but he's also talking about us as part of the body of Christ, this this whole body of believers. And we have a role to play in it that he's calling us to. Are you ready to take your position in the body of Christ and actually begin to be part of that body and start to rub up against those other believers to help them to be all that God wants them to be? Or do you instead want to perhaps be more passive, not be as involved? I I have to tell you, this thought came to my mind as I was working on this message of the boomerang kids. Have you heard that expression lately, the boomerang kids? Boomerang kids are those that grow up within the family. They, They go off and they perhaps go to college. But then one day you look around and there they are sitting on your couch, eating up all your provisions and never having a vision for what they need to be doing never knowing what they're to do next. Mom and dad simply taking care of them. Let me say to you, that is not. That is not God's intention for you and me in this body of Christ and in what he is calling us to within these words. He's calling us to be productive members of the body, denying self and blessing all those others that are out there. 
speaking the truth in love, that you may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined together and knit together by what every joint supplies, each supplying what is supposed to, according to the effective working by which, listen, by which every part does its share and causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. That is what this Christian life is supposed to be like. That is this godly behavior that God is talking to us about in this godly perfection. So then, how can it begin? It can begin as we're having difficulty working it out individually. If you and I can actually ask the Lord to just let our one gift, our two gifts, begin to interact with other members of the body, then what that's going to do is that that is going to produce much more of a collective perfection let's call it. But this body of Christ that is sitting here today can better serve the Lord and enjoy each other's presence and enjoy their own life simply by rubbing up against each other in a godly love, speaking the truth in love. And then from there, perhaps it can begin to spread for our own individual growing up in this stature of the Son of God can begin to become more in our individual lives. For today, may I leave us with a strong encouragement. While most all of those deeply devoted members of the body that I've known, I'll name two that some of you know, and one of them is my friend Ralph Newman, who was pastor here, his father-in-law, Dr. Culley, they would certainly strongly object and dispute their perfection if I were to be able to say to them these words of perfection about them. But let me say to you that in my estimation, as I, as I rubbed up against those two men, they're the best example of what God is talking about here. And it would be my deepest desire that someone might, in some small measure, have those same, those same generous thoughts about you and about me someday after we've left this earth. But until then, may we simply face this day with the assurance that God is living and working within each of us and enabling us with His Holy Spirit and with His gifts to do these things of the perfection that He's calling us to here. Praise be to God. Let's pray.